Video games rarely receive any publicity which sheds the medium in a positive light. The most popular of games are regularly criticised for depictions of violence, with many suggesting that this may lead to violent outbursts in real life. Games will be unlikely to make headline news unless the stories are telling of the degeneracy the popular games encourage. The most significant news story regarding the gaming industry that was heavily covered by mainstream media outlets and online forums alike was Gamergate, which encapsulated the issues with the rampant sexism and misogyny that were present not only in the gaming industry and the games themselves, but the players of these games, naturally. Anita Sarkeesian, of course, a feminist critic of games, received wild backlash for her analysis of the themes of these games, approaching them in a similar way that one would criticise any other form of media, which naturally resulted in her receiving death threats. Fellas, it's, it's a game. <laughs> While the enormous amount of support that has come out for Anita and her peers has come as a result of this media exposure, and these stories have successfully exposed an unfortunate truth about the incredibly misogynistic environment surrounding online gaming discourse, this has perpetuated a continuing narrative not only about particular games, but the entire medium. It's because of this sort of representation in the media that if one is a gamer, you can also assume that they're a terrible person, despite the fact that Anita Sarkeesian and many other women that have spoken out on these issues are themselves very passionate about the medium, albeit quite critical, and it is their passion for the medium that has motivated them to correct wrongs that they see within the industry. Alright. So, the Grand Theft Auto series has always been rife with controversy, and it's really not hard to figure out why, especially the fifth entry, having been ranked the highest selling game of all time, would garner so much negative attention from media conglomerates and grandmothers alike. As a testament to this, there is an entire Wikipedia article dedicated to the topic of controversy surrounding Grand Theft Auto V, with 32 references as of 2021. The outcry against the distasteful portrayal of women, as well as torture, comes after countless controversies surrounding previous installments, a most notorious example being the scandal surrounding San Andreas, released in 2004, in which the mainstream media became aware of a supposed minigame within the game which allowed the player to initiate in sexual intercourse. This was something that never made it to release, and while I agree it's unsavory, this stands as a testament to how easily misconstrued information surrounding video games has been. But beyond that, this franchise has been around since 1997, and still regularly attracts negative attention, with each game apparently building on the putridity of the previous. The absolute Neanderthals that threw rocks at the original arcade-style game for showing too much pixelated violence would likely be pissing their pants in shock over the acts of degeneracy that this franchise allows 12-year-olds to commit today. This is just one of many examples of games that have only come known to the greater public, perhaps even elevating their popularity as a result of moral panic. Another notable example is that of the Doom franchise, and to a lesser extent Quake, two games that were heavily discussed by gaming activists in lieu of the Columbine school shootings. There was a lot of one-sided discourse on this topic prior to this event, however this incident changed the stance of many in regards to homeland security, the schooling system, gun control, and violence in the media in general. Eric Harris was a known fan of the Doom franchise, a game first released in 1993 which was a pioneer in the first person style of shooting games. 
The game tasks the player to kill enemies which take the form of non-humanoid demons. There's no denying the violence that this game allows, but it's strange to have seen the series surviving such controversy when video footage made prior to the shootings show Harris explicitly mentioning Doom by name a number of times. It's a common argument used by people defending violence in video games that violent people are drawn to violent games and it is not violent games that indoctrinate people into committing violent acts, but the way that Harris talks about these things makes me wonder if it's not that simple. He describes the weapon he has acquired as being straight out of Doom, an observation which implies that Eric was excited to reenact events of the game within his own life, as opposed to being drawn to the game in order to satiate a desire for violence. It's entirely likely that Harris was drawn to the game initially as appealed to him, but his fantasies of violence were moulded slightly by the game, to the extent that he would look forward to the shooting as a result of its similarities to a level of doom. Consider also that Eric Harris was a creator of a number of doom levels. The legacy of this scandal, well remembered by the Doom community, would lead to the criticism of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which was released nine years after the September 11 attacks. Why is this relevant? You'll find out shortly. Uh, it's difficult to tell whether the developers were attempting to achieve a degree of controversy as a form of a publicity stunt or if they were utterly tone deaf. But regardless of this, the infamous No Russian level was playable in the released game as well as in the remaster and it was a mission which allowed, though perhaps did not entirely encourage, players to participate in a uh, terrorist attack which involves shooting countless civilians in an airport. Uh, yeah, This level is pivotal to the plot and while the game designer provided the option to skip the shooting without penalty, it's entirely likely that many players, the bulk of which were likely slightly above the age of 10, may not have realised this, heard the now infamous line, no Russian, and engaged in a simulation of a terrorist attack. With all this in mind, a question remains, why does the video game industry keep doing this? And it's quite simply tied to the desire for games to achieve publicity. Game designers will intentionally push the grounds of what is acceptable for depiction in the media in order to garner attention because, as I've already stated, this is the little attention that the game will receive in the mainstream. This is a strategy that is clearly successful as games like Call of Duty, Doom and Grand Theft Auto have been thriving for decades despite this negative attention. However, I believe that this marketing strategy, while beneficial to the profit of particular games, is to the long-term detriment of the game industry as a whole in regards to how it is depicted by the mainstream media. The overarching message within the media has come to recognize games as not only a frivolous activity, but also a threat to society or this new strange phenomenon. The announcement of new game systems or titles does not attract the same level of attention that the Western media pays for movies, television, sports, and even viral videos with cats or falling over funny people. Games like Minecraft, Fortnite, and Pokemon Go have managed to break more into public understanding. However, it remains true that the moral panic surrounding video games has left a remaining mark on the perception of video games on the general public. 
It's an inferior medium that has none of the artistry of books, movies, or music that we respect as cultural institution. Placing all of the prejudices of video games aside and considering the way that such a medium allows for a great deal of written texts, visuals, cutscenes, acting, and composition to be mingled to create one whole immersive experience, it is clear that the potential of the medium is immense and it is unfortunate that the general public has come to recognise it as a medium best suited to a mindless slog of action and hedonistic wish fulfilment. Now, I don't really have to do this, but to drive the point home, I want to show that the moral panic surrounding video games is largely irrational, as other respected mediums have attracted controversy themselves. There are plenty of books that advocate for selfish or even violent behaviours that are themselves classics. The Machiavellian philosophy was established largely through the writings of Machiavelli, as the name of the philosophy would suggest, and has itself been criticised for encouraging a worldview that frames every deed as a means to an end. This is something I will discuss a little later. Not only this, but I don't think I need to discuss the countless other books that have encouraged degenerate activities. Novels were banned in schools for a great length of their history, and science fiction and western novels had a reputation for mindless frivolity, as was demonstrated in James Joyce's Dubliners. I come at risk of broaching topics that are of more of political nature, so I'll stop here. However, it's clear that even classic texts can be viewed as largely immoral from certain standpoints. The history of movies is much shorter than that of the novel for obvious reasons. Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, adapted from a novel, was said to have encouraged such juvenile delinquency with the film receiving so much negative backlash that protesters were supposed to have appeared on his property to voice their immense distaste. As for music, the example that jumps to mind aside from the negative connotations of being a Wagner fan that have come up in recent years is the controversy surrounding Link Ray's Rumble, which was supposed to have been banned from radio stations in New York and elsewhere due to fears that it would encourage gang violence. Needless to say, whoever thought this instrumental track was encouraging gang violence in the 60s must be shitting themselves right now. I thought that this was a good example of a piece considering how music like this is developed into something far more violent or in general degenerate than prior, in the same way that Grand Theft Auto has received controversy for each and every installment in the franchise. The moral panic surrounding rock music would, of course, later transfer into fears that heavy metal music possessed satanic messaging if played backwards, and now people are comparatively less scared of the music out there that conveys explicit satanic messaging when you play it forwards. But whatever. And I'll admit that even having read countless classics which supposedly possess timeless stories, some of the stories that have stuck with me the most are rather embarrassingly, from video games, but not exactly the Fortnite epic. Most of the, uh, what we say, blockbuster games that make it into the mainstream media are your Fortnites and your Call of Duties and your Pokemon Go's. I think that we generally don't pay as much attention as a culture to those games with a little more nuance, obviously, because they're a bit... Not to say that you have to be a true intellectual to play them, but they're very appealing to a mass mass audience. 
The notion that a text worth reading or passing on has a teachable lesson, or morals in general, is something that we have come to accept as a culture even if we don't recognise it. We even enjoy pieces of media that adhere to our notions of ethics and aesthetics. These things aren't necessarily what is displayed on screen. An individual can enjoy a piece of media depicting violence and enjoy it because the they find that the way that violence is depicted is agreeable with their own stances on violence, with the main conception being that killing, whether it is done by a villain or even an anti-hero, is wrong. The same can be said for many games which provide options for moral choices to be made as well as bad ones. While the traditional narrative guides the audience through the plot through the perspective of the protagonist, the player actively participates in the development of the game's plot, opening up endless potential for how games can be used to show the consequences of actions and the benefits of certain behaviours. There are countless examples of games which feature gameplay features that encourage good behaviour, whether that be a lesson regarding violence or general do-goodery. The most simple example of these comes from Bioshock Infinite, which has the protagonist sent to a society that separated itself from the rest of America decades ago in order to worship the Founding Fathers and to practice white supremacy. Uh, yeah. Your character, Booker DeWitt, is the antichrist that these terrible people have prophesied, and by happenstance, you win a lottery which allows you to participate in a special event at a public gathering, which is fun, you would think, and your mind may jump to a money prize, or because this is a game, maybe a weapon of some kind, or a cool gadget, but no, in first person you're presented with a baseball, and you're encouraged by a moustache twirling, top hat wearing caricature of a slave driver to throw a baseball at a bound couple that is led on stage, the crime is being involved in an interracial relationship, and the character is goaded by the presenter to throw the ball at the couple, and then he says something racist that I'm not gonna repeat. So the character is presented with two options equally, uh, throw, throw at couple or throw at announcer. The player is not just asked to watch a character deal with a difficult moral quandary, but are made to actively participate in the decision-making process with only a few seconds to decide. Betray the morals that have been established by the game designers by framing this as a floating city, as a hub of hatred and prejudice, in order to remain inconspicuous and complete your job in order to wipe away your debts, or do what is morally right by punishing an individual that encourages you to commit a horrible act of violence, but as a result expose yourself as an outsider and turn an entire city of people on you. There's also the option to let the timer run out and to simply not throw the ball. Having experienced this quandary myself, I selected to throw the, <laughs> throw the ball at the announcer, which I had no idea would change the course of the game, which it kind of did. Immediately selecting either option or neither results in your hand being seized by an onlooker who spots a mark on your hand that exposes you as the Antichrist. Yeah, how'd that get there? And the entire city turns on you. So, this was the outcome you feared as a result of doing the morally correct thing, but this begs the question, the player can decide that the morally correct thing to do is to throw the ball at the people, the couple, if they have the opinion that that is the right thing to do.
Good behavior is eventually paid off, however, as the couple will later reunite with you and provide you with assistance. While providing you with both choices, the game presents you with the clear narrative that white supremacy is bad and also presents the message that helping people will come to your benefit. But anyone who has played this game before and is aware that what decisions you make will decide the game later will probably choose to throw at the announcer regardless of what they chose previously. Unless they're just... I don't know. Bored? This is where I want to talk about the notion of Machiavellianism in video game systems of morality. People who play video games will likely select the option that is morally correct as it is fed to them to be morally correct. This isn't necessarily because it is what the audience member deems to be in line with their own code of ethics. People who play games like this for a very long time come to understand the moral message that the game is trying to feed them, and by second nature will assume that being the nicest person possible will lead to the best possible outcome. Consider The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, which allows the character to complete a myriad of side quests, tasks which are tasks and minigames not tied to the main plot, that require the hero to complete acts of kindness throughout the world in exchange for rewards, which is, in this case, masks. What is this, 2021? Oh, that's crazy. The ultimate reward for this behavior is a mask that can be unlocked by completing all side quests, receiving all the masks, and trading them all in for one final mask that grants you ridiculous godlike powers. This is called the Fierce Deities Mask, which, according to Wikipedia, is a reference to the Tibetan Buddhist tradition in which a fierce deity is the manifestation of an enlightened Buddha. This game suggests that the protagonist, and therefore the individual, gains enlightenment through the completion of all of these chores or busy work. However, the player is expected to complete these on a subtextual level, understanding that a quest will likely lead to some sort of reward at the end. This is an interesting moral lesson, that performing such virtuous tasks as being able to accurately count 10 seconds within a few milliseconds of error, and learning a cool dance will ultimately lead to your enlightenment and grant you the power that you will need to absolutely believe the incarnation of evil that has brought the fairies and giants of the land to its knees. It's a very odd game. Nevertheless, the option for side quests is open in many games in various other genres and rewards you in a very similar way for completing good deeds. I'd say that this is almost very similar to how individuals reading a book will come to expect that certain characters will reach a good outcome and annoying characters will reach their just desserts. Even in the realm of TV shows following white male protagonists of extremely questionable morals including Breaking Bad, Hannibal Dexter, Mad Men, You and more recently Bojack Horseman who's technically a horse but whatever managed to allow the audience to grow with a character despite their flaws, and this same audience will often approve of the downfall they experience as a result of their immoral actions. This is a more straightforward narrative of morals that can be found in gaming. Really, it's more than you could really ask for from a game that came out on the Nintendo 64 and had an incredibly rushed development. There are various other ways that morality systems can be integrated into games, and a more complex way that this can be integrated is the potential for multiple endings. 
The notion of having multiple endings in text and TV is a little fringe. It's been relegated to choose your own adventure novels, endings have been changed due to audience complaint, and the most famous example of a show having multiple endings in recent years, at least to my memory, has been embarrassingly the Total Drama series, which had two possible endings for each season depending on which region you viewed them in. Unfortunately, while we will be discussing the notion of good and bad endings in this section, neither of these were a good ending, because Lushana should have won Total Drama Island. I've been mad about this ever since I saw the first series, and I think I may die mad. Owen, one of two possible winners. Actually, you don't want to hear about this. I'm just going to skip over this part of the script. Now, I want to talk about three games with multiple endings, which have moral implications that differ greatly, these are the first Sonic game, The Stanley Parable, and Bloodborne. All three of these games are exemplary case studies for a different way that moral decision making is integrated into gameplay. All three of these games have more than two endings, with the final outcome being decided by one's actions throughout the game. With Dishonored having a clearer moral code pushed, whereas the Stanley Parable is far too comedic and random to allow for any real learning to occur, the endings to Bloodborne are infamous for being quite vague and a little abstract, however to achieve each requires a different decision that may be influenced by their moral standing. Needless to say, there will be spoilers ahead. Alright, Dishonored has the most clear-cut moral passage and it's summarised by the biblical adage, killing people is bad so don't try to do it. Apart from key assassinations that need to be completed, the player is not necessarily required to kill any enemies in the game. While they are provided the means to annihilate a crowd of enemies with the option to unlock the ability to summon rats to devour your enemies alive, the game has a curious way of teaching the player how to rethink their actions. Killing more enemies will result in later levels being populated with more enemies, plague-ridden rats will attack you on site, as well as people who have become undead as the result of this same plague. These weepers have met this horrific end as a direct result of your misdeeds, and in an act of ju poetic justice, your path may come to an end as a result of one of these monsters. But it's not just the difficulty of the game that increases. The outcome of the story will change depending on how much of an awful person you've been. The ultimate goal of the game is for your character, Corvo, to avenge the death of your former leader of Dunwall, assassinated by evil usurpers, and also to save the daughter of the former leader, Emily Caldwin. A great irony of the game as pointed out by fans is that the main character kills countless innocent people in order to avenge the death of one. This is not true. The game teaches the individual how to approach the game in order to achieve the best possible outcome, with the least amount of killing resulting in the best ending with excessive killing providing one of two bad endings. It is a testament to which is the correct ending that in Dishonored 2 you can play as Emily Caldwin, who dies in one of the potential bad endings. It is the responsibility of the player to assess the situation and decide which action to take, and therefore criticisms of the character in, are in fact criticisms of the player themselves. It is unlikely that the first time players will achieve the best ending on their first run, that which has you save Emily and the usurpers are defeated, as the skill required to successfully sneak past every enemy is 
difficult. If the player has completed a high chaos run, which involves a lot of killing, they are presented with two potential endings. In this ending, the main villain holds Emily hostage and elects to kill himself alongside Emily by throwing himself into the void if you approach him. Unless you have the ability to stop time, which isn't a hyperbole, that's an ability that is unlockable in the game, you will be unable to save Emily with the main villain dying alongside her. You can choose instead to keep your distance and try your luck with a shot from your crossbow, which can potentially spare Emily, but has a high chance of also killing her. The game has encouraged you since the beginning to take a cleaner path towards your goals, but if you choose to ignore this, things will get messy. This moral message transcends individual save files, with the player being encouraged to complete multiple runs of the game in order to achieve the best ending, with the end of each level rewarding you with more points if you kill no enemies and are never sighted. This is the first of the more completionist forms of morality features in games, however this one is distinct from the others that we will discuss as it is the most didactic. Killing is bad, you cannot right wrongs with more wrongs, it's not a good idea to summon rats. Don't do that. The clumsiness of these high chaos endings may leave the character unsatisfied with the outcome and they may strive to replay the game. This is something that can't really be achieved with other storytelling mediums. The audience is not able to actively participate in the story, face moral quandaries and then return to the characters and its world. While Dishonored and many other games like it will embrace a pretty standard code of ethics when approaching the outcomes of multiple endings, the Stanley Parable rejects all notions of proper morality and instead provides a metatextual commentary on ethics and human compliance, with the narrator acting as a god for the protagonist, providing instructions for the player to accept or reject, with extremely varying endings. Dishonored has three possible endings, Stanley Parable has a total of 19 that the community has discovered, at least. I'm not going to analyse each one in depth because it would take a very long time, however I will explain a potential moral lesson that can be derived from four of these. Number one, the freedom ending is achieved if Stanley, the player, does everything that the narrator asks them with Stanley successfully destroying the mind control facility and escaping to the real world, with the narrator explaining that Stanley can do whatever he wants. The irony behind this being that the player has demonstrated ultimate subservience to a commander in order to achieve supposed autonomy, mocking the player for having taken a path that was frankly quite boring. Number two is the countdown ending, which has the player disobey the final order of the omniscient character, resulting in the self-destruction of the facility, which leads to the death of Stanley. If there's anything that can be derived from this ending, it's that you should probably not fool around with very important buttons, and had better rely on the advice of an all-seeing, all-knowing god. You've come this far only to question the authority, and now you die for it. The third one I want to talk about is the museum ending, which is kind of cool. Has the player again disobey the narrator heading into a museum as opposed to the mind control facility they're supposed to be going to. The narrator is replaced with a new voice that provides the player not with instructions but with wisdom. You can appreciate all of the artifacts, which are real concept art from the development of the game, but you will die after a certain time unless you quit the game. And the fourth one is the Mariella ending, 
which supposes that the voice in Stanley's head is possibly a hallucination and the events of the game, including the experience of an ever-looping hallway that Stanley finds himself in, is just part of a fantasy. And then Stanley drops dead in the hallway, and then, yeah, that's the end. There are far weirder endings to these I've shown, and each one provides a different potential moral lesson to learn, as opposed to each ending pointing to a larger moral lesson, as we've seen with Dishonored or even Bioshock Infinite. Not only does the game provide the player with the ability to choose 19 endings, but mocks their decision regardless of whichever ending they arrive at. I would have done a few more, but I feel like that would end up being a bit tedious and I don't want to talk too much about it. And really, if you'd like it that much and you find it interesting, just play the game. This is a story of morality, but not one that discusses the ethics of relationships between people, but rather the relationship between man and God, which some may consider to be absurdist as this game is. Codes of ethics are equated to a script that characters must follow, with the compliance or rejection of these instructions yielding different but not altogether better or worse results. Sure, dying sucks, but is it really worse than the possibility of living in total subservience to a higher being that provides you with arbitrary instructions? Why should the main character obey their instructions? Why should you go to mass each Sunday and leave carrots out for Santa and his reindeers? The game doesn't provide the answers, but sets the question to the player, through exposing them to countless bizarre potential endings. One of the endings has you break into a room of the office building that the developers have not finished making, and they drop you into a new minigame which, if played for a full two hours, will result in another ending. It's a very strange game. The endings to Bloodborne differ from both of these examples in a key way. It is very hard to tell what ending is good, which is bad, and why you're a slug in one of them. It's quite surreal in that sense. I suppose this plays into a more realistic conception of morality as experienced by the individual throughout life. Morals aren't exactly set in stone, and so much of life requires decision-making within moral grey areas, then at the end it can be difficult to know if you did the right thing, and if you have been properly rewarded for these actions. Fans have debated over the meanings of each ending, however, it can be said that each more or less aligns with the morality of the actions you have completed. You're unlikely to hear any of these referred to as the good or bad endings, because it's just a lot more complicated. The first ending can be reached by submitting and then surrendering to the final boss who allows you to kneel down before decapitating you. The player then watches the sunrise, hears the book tolling of bells, and the plain doll pranged by the grave says, Farewell, good hunter, maybe you find your worth in the waking world, which is, huh? To surrender to the villain was surely an act of cowardice, and yet you are praised as a good hunter. The next line is also open for a lot of interpretation. The waking world. This game is a nightmare for many reasons, but it might also be an English teacher's worst nightmare. As the team at From Software pulled in, and then I woke up and it was all a dream on us. How about we take a more Stanley reading of this? The character praises you for the skill in the game, and then wishes you well in the real world outside of the game. Whoa, did they just tell me to get a job? The second ending is achieved if the player does not surrender to the villain, and instead elects to defeat them in battle. If you're successful, German says, The night and the dream will long. A cutscene then plays of the player watching the moon with a figure approaching them from behind and attacking. 
you awake to a new scene which has you take the place of the main villain as Watcher of Dreams with the plain doll announcing May the Hunt Begin Again with the implication being that by killing the villain you have, whether wanting it or not, usurped them and continue a long tradition as the nightmare that you have experienced persists. Can you read this as a commentary on the hypocrisy of people who rise to power with the goal of defeating the corrupt only to become the corrupt themselves? Hmm, maybe. The final ending requires the player to defeat German as previously described, but to have consumed three-thirds of umbilical cord, which is gross. What follows is the same setting of the figure approaching you from behind, however, a blinding light prevents you from being hurt, and a fight ensues. If you defeat them, a unique message that the nightmare has been slain appears. Another cutscene plays which has the plain doll pick up a weird squid creature from the ground, asking, are you cold, then giggling, and as if responding to the squid utters, oh good hunter, this is perhaps the most confusing of endings, not only for people who don't actually understand the implication beyond the fact that you have turned into a squid, but for those who understand that the player has turned into a supernatural being not unlike that which they have been hunting for the entire game. Because this is considered the secret ending, it's like likely the most sought after as it requires two boss fights and a prerequisite. So is this the genuine ending? Dishonored had the sequel pick up from the good ending, which can therefore be considered the true ending. But what can you say of this one? What is the good ending? I like to see the beauty in the ambiguity of these endings. It's real. There's no clear-cut reward for ethical practice and there's no clear-cut moral code. It melds the aesthetics of Lovecraftian horror with the surreal ambiguity of modernist poetry. Don't eat umbilical cords, it's not good. So to return to the notion of immorality in video games, after analysing these examples of complex ethical and philosophical teachings, I'd like to talk about the player's choice. It's true, Grand Theft Auto provides no other alternative other than violence, and it is hard to imagine anyone playing the game purely to drive around while adhering to traffic laws. However, in choosing to play this game as opposed to many others that provide a different, less violent narrative, you have, for lack of a better word, chose violence. The developers at Rockstar are not ethically obligated to create a minigame where you properly figure out all of your taxes, put empty cans in the recycling bin, or save animals, because the game is explicitly aimed at an audience who do not want to do these things. If you want to save animals, you can go play Metal Gear Solid V Phantom Pain, which awards points to players for rescuing animals from potential combat zones. I'd love Hideo Kojima. <laughs> In choosing to play this game, the player has chosen to enact the actions of a villain, and the implications of this are incredibly complex. Plenty of people who have never broken the law in real life, aside from jaywalking and pirating, enjoy games like these. Hell, the stereotypical gamer is the sort of person who wouldn't even think of doing anything that would draw attention to themselves in public. <laughs> sure, aspiring criminals may enjoy these games as a means of fulfilling or even fleshing out the fantasies that they are already cultivating, but the vast majority of the people who play these games are unlikely to lay a finger on another person. And I think that's really interesting. What motivates the model citizen to live out a pure fantasy of being a hardened criminal, ordering fast food and following trains in exciting urban environments? Now, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't dare answer these questions myself. 
but I think a comparison can be made to the enjoyment of media that follows immoral protagonists whom we should come to associate with and maybe even root for. To suggest that every fan of Macbeth fantasizes about becoming a bloody tyrant, or to suggest that everyone who reads anything by Sylvia Plath is definitely destined to a similar fate is ridiculous. Art has not been analysed this way for centuries, and to analyse video games using this lens is indicative that fear can incite people to act intellectually in regressive ways, with the moral panic surrounding video games causing many people to believe that players are being brainwashed into cold-blooded killers. Returning to the topic of Call of Duty, Jacob Geller's video essay Does Call of Duty Believe in Anything discusses a later installment's content in order to find evidence of a particular ideology which the creators apparently deny existing. Jacob's video describes a single mission, a centerpiece of the game's marketing campaign named Clean House which has the player make their way through a house filled with hostages. The series seems to have developed in this regard as Jacob points out that the player will be rewarded by using the least amount of ammunition possible to eliminate only hostile enemies. This is a difficult task, but the only action which is explicitly punished in the mission, other than dying of course, is acting to shoot the innocent mother and child in the building. If you shoot the child, you instantly fail the mission, but do it three times and you'll be booted back to the main menu with text appearing on the screen reading are you serious? This is not something that was targeted by journalists, and the marketing team was certainly not naive enough to believe that the media would not fixate on the violence that can occur. How does this function as a publicity stunt? The sort of person who would be interested in simulating a situation in which they can harm innocent civilians is drawn to the game, only to be scolded by the game for such behaviour and those who hear about the game as a result of the same controversy will likely pick it up and never think to commit this act that the designer deems to be so immoral. I've touched on more or less everything that I want to explore, but before I finish this I really want to focus a bit more on the case study into Eric Harris because it is quite frankly chilling. It's really difficult to tell the work of Eric Harris apart from another average non-violent creator of a custom Doom level. And the fact that he created these, and the details of these levels, are only highly disturbing in retrospect. If you were unaware of the horrible deeds he committed before his life came to an end, you may even have laughed at the highly exaggerated threat he gives the player. You may not change a thing about this WAD. If you do, I will blow you up, and it will be cool. He even refuses to swear properly in his customization of the game, substituting the F-word with freaking, as if he were someone far too sensible to actually use curse words. The film Bowling for Columbine provides a fairly well-researched insight into the life of the two boys. I don't recommend you watch it because you have doubtlessly already seen it. There are countless other sources related to the two and their obsession with violent media, so I don't find it necessary to go any further into this. However, I'd like to point out that this highlights a startling truth of our society that has existed for thousands of years. You can look to your left and right, you can meet one of many millions of players of a particular video game, and you can never be entirely sure if the person you have encountered is an aspiring killer. That's all. Thank you.